Well, good morning. It's good to be back with all of you again. Um, I'm looking forward to opening up God's Word with you in Hebrews chapter 10. So you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And what a perfect song to set us up for this passage of Scripture. A passage that really is based upon the promises of God's words. I, I've, I've got to say, so um, Aureli Perez is so sweet. Uh, she works up in the office with us in the seminary, and she told me this week, or last week, she said, um, I'm so excited that you're coming back. Is Aureli here in this room? Okay, nice. Well, I did ask her if I could say this, so she's okay with it. And she came in and um, said, oh, I'm so excited that you're, you're going to be preaching this week. And in, in a moment of really wanting to be encouraging, she said, you know, to prepare, I've started listening to uh, Paul Twist teaching on the same passage. <laughs> so I just, uh, <sighs> it doesn't even matter what we say, I can't compete. I can't compete. I think half the time, Paul, I don't even think he's teaching the Bible, but we're just so enamored with his English accent, you know? So she was trying to be encouraging, but at least one person this week at Every Woman's Grace will be disappointed uh, with today's lesson. <laughs> um, just kidding. I'm so excited to be, I mean, I'm not kidding about the accent, but I'm kidding <laughs> about the disappointment. It's a remarkable text we come to this morning. So why don't we do this? Why don't we read the text? Uh, it's going to be verses 19 through 25 of chapter 10, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump into it and see what the Lord is saying to us in his word. So let's read the text. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, beginning verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, as we open your word, we recognize that you are speaking to us, that your word is living and active, and we ask, Lord, that you would reveal yourself, open our minds to understand, give us hearts to receive, help us to be those who do not merely take in your word, but it doesn't descend into our hearts and transform our lives. Help us to be those, Father, who come to your word with humble submission, asking for you to do something to transform us through it. We want to honor you, Lord. We want to live for your glory, not for ours, because you are worthy. And so help us now as we receive your word um, to be transformed by it and show us Christ in all of his majestic beauty and splendor and glory. Show us Christ. It's in his name we ask. Amen. I know some of you in this room, probably most of you, are going to be familiar with this scenario. When you're talking to a little child, maybe five or six years old, 
and out of the blue, they ask you a question and it kind of rocks you, kind of puts you on your heels and you have to think for a second, wait, what is the answer to that question? This happened uh, the other week. Well, it's been happening a lot actually in my home because uh, Felicity is five years old and she's exploring. So she is looking and noticing, observing the world around her and asking a lot of questions. The other day, we were driving down the road, just minding our own business, me and Ginger, with the kids in the back. And out of the back comes this question. So dad, what are atoms made of? So in a moment of panic, Ginger's up there going, hey Siri, what subatomic particles? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. Uh, how do you explain neurons and electrons to a five-year-old? And do we even understand it? And so we've been getting a lot of those questions, and they're such good questions. I've resorted to the answer of, Felicity, I don't know, but God does. And so for some of those, uh, we have to. But the other night, she asked a, a, a particularly poignant and profound question. I, I walked into the playroom where she was playing with her toys, and she said, Daddy, what happens when you trust in Jesus? It's a simple question, isn't it? But how would you answer that? There's a profundity to the question because inherent to the question itself is the assumption that something does happen when you trust in Jesus. A change takes place. There's an effect. Trusting in Jesus does something to you and changes your life. But she wanted to know what what is it that happens when you trust in Jesus? It was only a few minutes later she was watching an educational video. It was definitely educational and not. We limit screen time, okay? It was a very educational video. Um, on atoms, and no, it wasn't. But an, an ad came up for SpongeBob SquarePants, and she she turned to her sister, who's three, Evie Joe, and said, "Evie Joe, we don't watch SpongeBob. He's not trusting in Jesus." I don't know where she got that. I don't know if SpongeBob was a Christian or not, but in her mind, he wasn't trusting Jesus. But what a, what a remarkable question to contemplate. What happens, Daddy, when you trust in Jesus? Well, this text tells us. What happens when you trust in Jesus? And we're going to discover this morning that because of the gospel, because of all of these beautiful, theological, profound truths that you've been studying the last couple of weeks, because of the gospel, your sins are forgiven. Which means something changes. You can actually draw near to God in sweet, intimate fellowship. You have the assurance of hope. In an otherwise hopeless world, when you trust in Jesus, your soul grabs on to the confident assurance of hope 
there is a future and it's reserved for me and I will be rescued out of this broken body and this death-plagued world and I will live with my Savior in glory forever and your soul clings to hope. You hold fast to certain realities because the gospel changes things. And we're going to discover a third reality or effect of the gospel. Not only can you draw near to God, do you hold fast to hope, but you are set free to love others. And that language of being set free is intentional because before the gospel, every one of us in one form or another, it looks different, but every one of us before we trusted Jesus was enslaved to selfishness and you were in it for you. And the gospel, it sets you free to love others. And that's what the preacher shows us changes in the gospel. It's a message that the struggling Christians needed to hear because they were thinking, as we've talked about in the last weeks, of abandoning the gospel. Life as a Christian had become hard. And this sermon of Hebrews, we can't repeat it enough, is a very simple sermon with three words as its message. Jesus is better. He's better than anything that could tempt you away, and he's worth it all. So I know this life is hard, but keep holding on. Jesus is better. They needed to be reminded of this gospel, not only the nuts and bolts of what comprised it, but the effects that flowed from it. And they had even forgotten how the gospel had at points changed their lives. They, they became so focused on their pain and what they were missing out on that they had even come to forget how they themselves had been transformed. And so the preacher comes with a very necessary message and tells them what happens when you trust in Jesus. Now, uh, before we get into this text, just a note on the pattern of the book, because as we know, it is a sermon and there are certain, there's structure to this sermon. And the preacher, for large portions of this sermon, the book of Hebrews, um, delves into deep, theology. But he always comes out and applies that to their life. So the book of Hebrews, if it was a checkerboard, it would look like this pattern of explanation, exhortation, explanation, exhortation, explanation, exhortation. Meaning he'll, he'll get lost almost. You feel this preacher's passion as he's explaining some of the deepest theological realities about God and the angels and Christ and the atonement. And he'll go on for chapters at times, but then he always turns around and he looks you in the eye and says, now, therefore you in light of that. And that's so helpful because we need that truth brought to bear on our life. We need truth for life. And so um, the preacher is perfectly balanced. Now here's a little point of application. And this is some self-diagnosis time. Okay. Some of you in this room um, are really drawn to those portions of explanation. You want to muse on deep doctrine all day, and you'd be content to read book after book, but you may be tempted to leave it there in your mind. 
and content to see no transformation of that truth impacting your life. Some of you would be content to hear a brilliant Paul Twissian exposition where the text is laid out in intricate detail, but have no concern that it doesn't affect how you treat the ladies sitting next to you when you leave or your kids when you pick them up from school or from homeschool. So some of us need to realize it's a deadly thing to delve into the depths of theological truth and to keep it in the mind only. However, some of us in this room want to zoom past all that complicated explanation stuff and just say, give me the practical. Give me five tips for, like, do I use shampoo every day? Or how do I, give, do, how do I stop biting my nails? What, what is the, I mean, I don't know. Am I feeding my kid? Should I give them mac and cheese? What is Give me something practical, preacher. I'm dealing with practical life stuff, and I need help. And so we, we always want those five points for this, seven points for this. And, you know, that's why our bookstores, Christian bookstores, not Grace Books, are filled so often with all these tips and self-help. And it's almost like thera- therapy for, for Christians, Christianity light. And we go, I don't need to talk about Melchizedek. Just tell me what to do today. Well, you need to realize, no, 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 it's actually right doctrine that fuels right living. You cannot produce right living without the depth of theology because it's the theology that, that fuels our behavior. And so, so whether you're tempted one way or the other, this preacher understands that reality, that right theology is required for right living. So he gives theology and it's profound. At times it's difficult to follow, but then it always turns around in exhortation with a therefore. In light of this, you must live like this. And so this passage is a therefore passage. In verse 19 of chapter 10, we come to a direct address of his audience. Now, Since chapter 8, verse 2, he has not one time addressed the audience directly. It's been third pronoun, third person pronoun. It's not been any first or second person, you, we, me. He's been delving into the profound realities of Christ for chapters. But now he turns and he looks at us. And he says, therefore, brethren. All of what he's just taught us has great bearing on our life. So let me just say this. The Bible isn't a textbook to pass an annual doctrine exam. It's the light to illuminate your path in a very dark world. It's meant to produce something. And it has immediate implications for your life. And the preacher is about to show us. Now, I'm going to break down this passage with two points. One is verses 19, 20, and 21. And I'm calling it Review Gospel Doctrine. So this is a review of gospel doctrine. And then in the remaining verses 22 through 25, we'll look at response, gospel effects. So a bit of review and then response. Now, the review part, I'm going to go through quickly. I know you don't believe me, but I'm going to. Um, Because you've spent weeks there and you've been very aptly taught by the ladies who've taught before me. And so we don't need to spend 
too long here, but, but, but the preacher wants to review, so, so we'll review with him. So look at point one, review gospel doctrine, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers or brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, now, pause there. He's about to say, let us three times. And you can see that's the response. So we'll get to that in a moment. But he begins, since or in light of these realities, we need to respond a certain way. Now, what are the realities he's wanting to review? Well, look at what he says in verse 19. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, pause there for a moment. We're familiar with with the context here. He's speaking to believers in Jesus who've come out of Judaism. And so the holy places were a significant part of Israelite religion. It was the physical room where the priest would go to offer sacrifices with certain sacrifices for certain sins at certain times. And the priest acted as a mediator for the people. Um, This is all explained at the start of chapter 9. If you look at chapter 9, and you could read the first 10 verses or so, it's very clear, and you you were taught this probably last week, but just notice verse 7. There's a room, the second room in this tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, and the high priest would go there, only the high priest, and he once a year, and he would always take blood, which he would offer for himself and for the sins of the people. Now, understanding this sacrificial system where a priest, on behalf of the sins of the people, would take a sacrifice and slaughter it and take it into the presence of God, signified by this physical room, God was teaching us something. He was teaching Israel something. What he's teaching them, well, there's many lessons, but he's teaching them the heinousness of sin. Your sin is so great that you cannot just waltz into the presence of God. He's teaching them the holiness of himself. He is a holy God. Of course we know God lives everywhere. I mean, God is everywhere. So why did he want a room where his presence would be held called the Holy of Holies? Because he was trying to show them with physical objects that we are separated because of your sin. So if you are going to come into my presence, it's highly regulated. You need a go-between, a mediator, the priest, and you need to bring a sacrifice. You need blood because your sin requires blood. And if you don't bring a sacrifice, it's your blood that is required of you. Now, he brings up these holy places because he's making a point. The Israelites knew they had no confidence to enter the holy places. If you had shown up to Israel in their camp and you were a visitor, let's say you were a Philistine, um, and said, hey, want a tour? And you had a friend who was an Israelite, which was common for Israelites to have friends with the pagans. No Israelite in their right mind would go, hey, let me show you the, let me show you the Holy of Holies. Come on. So in here we have the, there was no confidence to enter that space. 
It's a sacred space. It was a space set apart. You don't go in there, but one man, but once a year, and he has to have a very specific sacrifice. Otherwise, he is struck down. We don't go there. There's no confidence to enter God's presence because they know they're not worthy. But the preacher says, but since we have confidence to enter, wait, how? Look at verse 19. By the blood of Jesus. And then he reviews what he's just taught you. This is a new and a living way. Jesus Christ entered not into a tabernacle made with hands, but into heaven itself. He went before the throne of God and he stands as a mediator between God and sinful man. And he brings a sacrifice, but it's not a lamb. It's himself. And because of this sacrifice, we can enter with confidence into the presence of God because Jesus is our priest and he is our sacrifice. For the sake of time, we won't look into it, but in chapter nine, verses 24 to 28, he explains Christ went into the heaven, into heaven, not into the holy of holies. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of everything that sacrificial system pointed to. And so we could break it down like this. The lesson of the sacrificial system, which Israel observed for thousands of years, was showing them you cannot enter God's presence without a sacrifice. And that you need a priest to, to stand between you and, uh, you and God. And All of that, that entire sacrificial system was always pointing to the fulfillment, which is Jesus. So on the cross, what Jesus Christ did for sinners is he bore the wrath for the sins that sinners have committed. He took upon himself the punishment that was rightfully deserved by transgressors. He was our sacrifice and he brought that to the Lord himself bearing the sins of all who would come to him. And that sacrifice was accepted on our behalf. So that now in Christ, we can be reconnected in right relationship with our creator. And the preacher says, so in light of all of this, because of this gospel, there are several implications. So let's consider those implications for the remainder of our time. Point two, response, gospel effects. Let us draw near. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast. Look at verse 24. Let us consider how. There are three responses, necessary effects that result from us trusting in Jesus in the gospel. And the first is let us draw near. Look there in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Before the sacrifice of Christ, we stand aloof from our God. We stand separated from our God. I know many people don't feel that separation. Many people don't walk around recognizing that separation. I think most people would probably assume there isn't a separation. 
But that's because we don't understand the nature of our sin. If you were to ask someone on the street, will will God accept you into heaven? The response 99% of the time will be yes. And if you ask them why, the basis for that will be because I. I'm not that bad of a person. I've done this. I'm trying my best here. And it just shows you people do not understand the weight of their sinfulness. And so this, the preacher's answering a problem that, that most people don't even understand is a problem. I thought I was close to God. I thought God was good with me. But after explaining the reality of the old covenant and the necessary sacrifices required to bring us near, it is very clear in the, the, these, this congregation's mind that if we don't have a sacrifice and a priest, we cannot approach God. But now in Christ, he's calling us to draw near, to come close to God. And he says to do so, with a clean, uh, full assurance of faith, sorry, with a clean conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's a confidence to enter near to God knowing that everything that has kept us apart from him has been washed away. Um, I want to point out specifically what happens when we draw near to the Lord, because we've talked about it already in the book of Hebrews. Um, what, what do we get when we draw near to the Lord? Well, turn back to chapter 4 for a moment and look at verse 14. We have the same word, draw near, used in verse 16 of chapter 4. And the preacher says something uh, similar. He says in verse 14, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The sinner who has recognized their need for mercy and their need for grace in Christ Jesus draws near to the throne of God with confidence. Why? Because they know the basis of their drawing near is not their perfection and performance. It's Christ's. And so because of what Christ has done in being our high priest and ultimately being our sacrifice for sins, we can draw near to God in confidence, knowing we will receive mercy and grace for all we need. And notice what he says back in chapter 10, with full assurance of faith. Um, Full assurance. Uh, A true heart in full assurance. The full assurance is confidence. And the true heart, he mentions, let us draw with a true heart, is a genuine or a sincere heart. We can come before God with a genuine heart in full confidence. And where does that confidence come from? Well, it comes from the song we sang, right? Every promise of your word, full assurance of faith. Faith, trust, believing that what Jesus Christ says he has done, he has done. He has paid the debt. And so we can go to God knowing in faith, with full confidence, our debt has been paid. Um, there was a, a few years ago, I wanna, uh, Ginger and I um, 
attended uh, a show. I don't know if some of you might remember when Kanye West came out with um, a Christian album. And at the time, it, it seemed really encouraging. It's been sad to sort of see where Kanye's life has gone since then. But my wife and I were curious, and so we attended what he was calling his Sunday service uh, in, in uh, the Forum, I think in Irvine. And we went there for, it's like a, a choir performance of his album. And Kanye West, um, before he professed faith and made that album, had a very famous song called Jesus Walks. And the song is built around wanting Jesus to walk with him in life. And the chorus said this. I'm not going to rap it. Don't worry. Um, I, I want to talk to God, but I'm afraid because I haven't talked in so long. And he sort of repeats that chorus over and over. So he's saying, I want to be close, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid to, to approach him. Now, in this um, show that Ginger and I went to, it was remarkable at the end, he's singing that song and sort of just repeating it over and over, and he changes the words. And he says, I, I want to talk to God, but I'm afraid because I haven't talked to him in so long, but I'm not afraid anymore because I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. I'm covered in the blood, and you can be covered too. And like I said, it's been, it's been sad to see where his life has gone since then. But I just thought, in spite of, in spite of that, he, the words are profoundly true. There is no fear in approaching God, even this just and righteous, holy God, even in spite of who we are, what we've said and done and thought and the actions of our life and the broken despair we've, we've lived through and the, the wretchedness of our actions because Christ has covered us in his blood. Friends, this is a very simple message. It's a very simple gospel. You can have your dirty conscience cleared. Your filthy, sin-stained body can be washed by the pure water of salvation. Why? Because Jesus stands as your priest and offered himself as your sacrifice you don't need to be afraid anymore. You can enter the presence of God with confidence. He then says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The confession of our hope. What is it that we're called to hold fast to? Well, he says the confession of our hope. And you say, well, well, what is the confession of our hope? Exegetically, how, how would we parse that out and, and determine the confession of our hope? Well, friends, it's the reality of everything that we've been studying so far. The confession of our hope are these 10 chapters of these gems of Christ and his atonement, atoning work and his gospel message that are coming crashing down on our soul that have been building that Christ is the messenger that is a greater messenger than the angels. And he's a greater servant than Moses because he's not just a servant, he's the son. And he's not just a priest who repeatedly offers sacrifice after sacrifice, working as this sort of spiritual sacred butcher in the house of Israel, taking animal after animal after animal after animal year on end, 
never able to sit down, never resting from his work because you keep sinning and God is still righteous and just. And so the lamb has to be slaughtered repeatedly over and over. No, Christ is a better priest. He's a better sacrifice because he's the priest who takes one sacrifice and slaughters it once and sits down because the sacrifice is himself. And so on the cross, he cried, Tetelestai, it is finished. So the author has been showing us all of these realities of who Christ is. And he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Don't waver. Don't let go from what Christ has done. And he's saying this to Christians, as we've talked about, who are wavering. They're starting to wonder because life is hard and persecution is getting hotter and the old life is looking good and they're thinking maybe I should waver and go back and some have maybe even apostatized. And he's telling them, don't let go. Friends, the reality is that in your life and mine, if we do not have the work of Christ on our behalf, we are hopeless. What hope do you have to stand before a righteous judge in the day of your judgment and give him any reason why he should not punish you rightly for what you've done? Outside of Christ, we have nothing. We've learned too much about the sinfulness of our sin. We've learned too much about the goodness and justice of a holy God who cannot look on and allow sin to be swept under the rug. Friends, without Christ Jesus on our behalf, we have no hope. And the author is saying, don't let go of that hope. And then he assures them, for he who promised is faithful. If he said it, he'll do it. He's coming back. He's coming to judge and to rescue. He's going to do it. He's faithful. That's what faith is, simply believing what God says, that what he said he'll do, he will do. And so the author is reminding them of the faithfulness of Christ. Don't waver. He's going to rescue you. He's going to come again. He is your only hope. Um, there's a story I want to read about a woman. Um, I, think, I think this is the time for it. I was going to close my message with it, but I think this is the time. Um, I was reading a book recently, um, and it, it's, it was, it's called uh, Everything Sad is Untrue. It's a memoir of a, a young boy who comes from Iran as a little boy and moves to Oklahoma. And the book is written in a really clever way from his perspective as a six-year-old, experiencing life in Oklahoma. And you could imagine coming from Persia, it's a totally different world. About halfway through the book, he explains why his family is living in abject poverty without their father, and he's being bullied in school in Oklahoma. He explains why they're there, and this is what he says. My mom was a Sayed, Muslim, from the bloodline of the prophet Muhammad. In Iran, if you convert from Islam to Christianity, it's a capital crime. That means if they find you guilty in religious court, they kill you. Um, 
probably nothing convert, uh, happens to you if you convert as just a six-year-old, except if you say, I'm a Christian now in your school, chances are the religious committee will hear about it, raid your house, because if you're a Christian now, then so are your parents probably, and the committee does stuff way worse than killing you. And so when my sister walked out of her room and said she'd met Jesus, my mom knew all of that. And here's the part that gets hard to believe. Seema, my mom, read about Jesus and became a Christian too. Not just a regular one who keeps it in their pocket. She fell in love. She wanted everybody to have what she had, to be free, to realize that in other religions, you have rules and codes and obligations to follow, to earn good things. But all you had to do with Jesus was believe he was the one who died for you. And she believed. When I tell the story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up to that point, I've told them about the house with the birds and the walls, all the villages my grandfather owned, all of the gold, my mom's own medical practice, all the amazing things she had that we don't have anymore because she became a Christian. All the money she gave up. So we're poor now. But I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope that they'll hear her, and she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? It's true, and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs of Jolfa and even maybe your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise if you believe it's true that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. That or my mom is insane. There's no middle. You can't say it's a quirky thing she thinks sometimes because she went all the way with it. If it's not true, she made a giant mistake, but she doesn't think so. She had all that wealth, the love of all those people she helped in her clinic. They treated her like a queen. She was a Saeed and she's poor now. People spit on her on buses. She's a refugee in places where people hate refugees with a husband who hits harder than a second degree black belt because he's a third degree black belt. And she'll tell you it's worth it. Jesus is better. It's true. We can keep talking about it, keep grinding our teeth on why Seema converted since it turned the fate of everybody in the story. It's why we're here hiding in Oklahoma. We can wonder and question and disagree. You can be certain she's dead wrong, but you can't make her agree with you. It's true. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This whole story hinges on it. Friends, that's the reality of verse 23. Hold fast the confession without wavering because it's true. He's faithful. He's never lied to you and he never will. So hold fast. This beautiful gospel that reunites you with your maker, it's true. And so no matter what difficulties come along, he's saying because of the gospel, don't let go. It's true. Daddy, what happens when you trust in Jesus? 
your sins are forgiven and you can draw near to God in confidence knowing that hell has been paid and heaven is waiting for you. Effect number one. Effect number two, hold fast to that truth. Don't let it go because he's faithful. Effect number three, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, consider how. Now this, I don't know if this goes exactly where we thought it might go because so far in the effects of the gospel, it's pretty par for the course in the sense of these are all about me. What happens when I trust in Jesus? I get my sins forgiven. What happens when I trust in Jesus? I get to hold fast to the hope of eternal life, me. But something else happens. When you trust in Jesus, you're brought into the family of faith. You're brought into a community of other believers. You're brought into a world of love called the church. And the preacher says, because of the gospel, consider others. That word consider, observe carefully. Contemplate. Look at in a reflective manner. Consider. And so, can we just pause? As a result of the gospel, carefully contemplate others. I wonder how often we do that. Probably not enough, right? The care and attention we give to our own spiritual life, how often do we do that for others? We can be so selfish, even in how we think about the gospel. It's me and Jesus, baby. I I, I mean, how often are we just, it's my walk with, with God and just isolated and insulated from everyone else. It's me and Jesus. The gospel's just me and Jesus. And he says, no, 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 no. One of the immediate effects, yes, you have, you, you can draw near and yes, you hold fast to the hope, but now you must consider others because when you are washed by the blood of Jesus, you become a blood relative of everyone else who's been washed by the blood of Jesus and you're brought into the family of faith and you're called to consider them. Now, this selflessness shouldn't surprise us considering what the gospel does. 2 Corinthians 5.14, jot that down and may that become a familiar text to you and verse 15 because listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Jesus has died for all of us. So we've all died, all of us in Christ Jesus who are in Christ Jesus have died because he died for us. Now, verse 15, why did he die for us? He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you realize what the gospel does? It kills your selfishness. You die to the selfishness that enslaved you. 
And now you are set free to consider others. Consider them how? Well, the preacher says, well, to stir them up to love and good works. This, this is stirring one another on to, to live the Christian life in good faith, to obey, walk in obedience of Jesus. This is considering carefully how we can help one another in this very treacherous and often discouraging life. And you can see how that was immediately relevant for the audience that was receiving it, right? They were thinking about dropping out. And so he's not just encouraging them individually, but he's saying, okay, let me encourage you. Now you go and encourage one another. They were thinking of neglecting and abandoning one another. And so he says, no, no, consider how to stir one another up to obedience, to love, to good works. Don't neglect one another. Some of you are doing that, he says. But encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. (laughs) The day, the day when he returns, the day when every tear will be wiped from our eye, it is certain he's going to do it. It will be realized we look to it with hope, holding on to it with steadfastness. But as we wait, we encourage one another. Now, let me just say this and recognize it's hard to think about others when you're struggling. Part of that is because we so often believe the lie, whether of our own flesh or of the world around us, that we need to take care of ourselves before we can be of any good to someone else. I need to pamper me before I can encourage you. I need to make sure I'm taken care of in every way. I need to go have a soul spa day before I can even think about you and your struggles you're coming to me. Hey, hold on, sister. You're coming to me with all your problems. I got a few problems. I'll come back to you next week. And we can imbibe this, this idea that, no, 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 I've got, to be, I've got to be perfectly cared for before I can be of any good to others. I don't know where you're getting that because it's not from the gospel. Is that how Jesus behaved? As he was being slaughtered, his flesh being ripped from as hanging on a cross, struggling with every breath, who was he thinking about? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. He's thinking about the soldiers who pinned him to the cross. Oh, and he looks at John and says, care for my mother. Jesus, you'll be back in three days. She'll be fine. You should be worried about you. How are you going to get through this? But he's thinking about her. He's thinking about his enemies in the time of his darkest moment of, of crucifixion as he's being mocked and spit upon. He's thinking about the mockers. Father, forgive them. He's thinking about the criminals to his right and his left. I've been guilty of it. Closing an opportunity for evangelism because I'm just a little flustered right now. I might not make it to my flight on time. So I'm really not going to worry about your needs. I've got some stuff to take care of. And Christ is hanging on the cross, evangelizing the criminals. Well, that's because the gospel sets us free from our selfishness. It frees us from the chains of self-absorption. We're going to see it next week in the end of this chapter. And I mentioned it last time I was here when they were struggling and being beaten 
And look at verse 34, but you had compassion on those in prison. Even as they were being beaten and robbed, they were caring about others. My goodness, that's supernatural. It's definitely not natural. As you receive the cancer diagnosis to be concerned with the nurse's spiritual care. That's why those stories in the hospital are always so, they're just so Christian, aren't they? When your uncle or your aunt or your grandmother or your son or is in the hospital and the report comes back after a week as they're fighting for their life and the nurses go, he just keeps ministering to us. And he cares about how we're doing. We've never had a patient like it. And you just think that's just so Christian. Because that's what Christianity is. You've been set free for you're not, so you're not absorbed by your selfishness. You're set free to love God and as a result, love all those around you, especially the household of God. It's why in chapter 13, in the beginning of chapter 13, let brotherly love continue, he says. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. This is natural for the believer who's filled with the spirit of God. But that's the effect of the gospel. It's all over the Bible. Um, We could find example after example. I think of the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, who, as they grew in poverty, grew in generosity. That's backwards. Um, you know, I, I know, I, I, I talk about Jesus on the cross, loving others, and maybe in the back of your head, even though you wouldn't say it, you go, but that's Jesus, right? Oh, okay, well then, let's use a different example. Let's use a random guy who's just at church, holds no formal office, um, his name's Stephen, but he happened to be filled by the Holy Spirit, which is what all believers are, and was called to give an account for his faith, in Acts chapter 8, and does, and then a crowd of angry men pick up stones to crush his skull in the broad daylight, and as he's being brutally murdered, cries out, Father, do not hold this against them. Sounds like Jesus. Same response. Stephen isn't Jesus, but he has Jesus indwelling him. He has the Spirit of Christ empowering him, because that's Christianity. And so to be a Christian means to be set free from selfishness, set free to love others with a supernatural spirit produced, grace produced love. It's an effect of the gospel. And friends, what a beautiful effect that as you and I come into the household of God, the household of faith, the church, this world of love, we encounter all of these Christians who've trusted in Jesus and everything has changed. They have peace with God. Their sins have been forgiven. They have hope, even in the hopelessness of a dark and broken world. And they have supernatural love for one another. And as we give that love, we experience that love in the church. So I gave my answer. I wonder what you'd tell my daughter. What happens when you trust in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we love your word. We're thankful for your word. Help us, Father, to, um, to really 
contemplate and to allow this to sink into our souls, that we would be those who are hope-filled, confident to draw near to you, and considerate, genuinely considerate of those around us. We love you, Lord, and we want to follow your example, though imperfectly, we ask for grace to do so better. I ask in the name of Christ. Amen.